0: This is April twenty third, twenty twenty. And um we're moving into I don't know, fifth or sixth week of the uh lockdown. I'm forgetting uh I'm losing track of weeks uh as I have from the beginning losing been losing track of days, what day is what. I hear this from others as well. But uh, what's different this week, a little bit different from last week, is that uh, people are starting to talk about, I mean, people meaning experts and politicians, talking about opening up, uh, easing off some of the restrictions and uh, how that might happen and when that might happen. There's quite a bit of uh, controversy over that. (coughs) I've been reading... Uh, articles about uh all of this and uh, an especially good one appeared in the new yorker dated april 13th and is by jeff dyer d-y-e-r and um i'll read i'll read some of this um He says that uh, cancellations have become part of the general condition of existence. He says that's <clears throat> that's what happened during World War One, when, after worrying that they might miss out on the fighting because it would all be over by Christmas, people settled into the feeling that it might never end. The, the uh, that that's pretty much the time of the uh, last great pandemic. 1918, 1919, but this is the beginning. Uh, He goes on, the proposed end dates of the current lockdowns and closures are pretty arbitrary in practical terms, but they serve the useful function of making life seem manageable. The alternative, everything shut everywhere for the foreseeable future, would make us feel like we had fallen out of time. Uh, at a time when it's already difficult to remember which day of the week it is, when the main way of distinguishing one day from the next is the mounting toll of deaths. And then he says something that I appreciate. He says, on a larger scale, the fact that men may be at a higher risk of fatal infection is perhaps another sign that we might be living, or more accurately, dying, through an eagerly anticipated phenomenon, the end of patriarchy. Like any reasonable man, I was rather looking forward to this, but am now worried by two things, the vexed political chestnut of whether the ends justify the means (laughs) and whether I'll be around to see it. Uh, This uh, reference to the end of patriarchy Uh, reminded me of something I saw on, uh, I don't know, CNN or MSNBC, where they showed that uh, the countries, or at least some of the countries with the lowest death rates from this, have women leaders. Uh, They gave examples of the countries of Germany, Germany, uh, Finland, Norway, Denmark, New Zealand, of course, and South Korea. While those countries with the highest percentage have men leaders. The United States, of course, uh, England, Italy, Spain. And then they asked a, uh, a woman, who was it? It was a uh, uh, Madeline Albright, they asked her uh, why she thought that might be. And she <laughs> dove in and said that uh, she, so many studies have shown that women tend to be more cooperative, more collaborative, uh, better listeners, and better at multitasking. These are all things, generalizations that I've heard for many years. Multitasking because uh, for millennia they have been the uh, homemakers and child rearers uh, who have to uh, <coughs> be at the stove and or at the fireplace what with a child and or two on their hips but uh i think it's something to appreciate that uh, yeah you never know Women, women are not devoid of greed, anger, and delusion as a general proposition, but um, I look forward to the time when we have more women leaders for the reasons that Madeleine Albright gave because of the, their collaborative talents and ability to listen and not assert themselves with such aggression, most women. Uh, in another part of this jeff Dwy- Dyer's article uh he talks about the challenge of um being unified and and having solidarity as a as a as a country and as a world um, in under these conditions um, he he i'll read him here he says were shaped by a threat that is at once invisible and implacable. And the necessary unity and solidarity must lack all the excitement traditionally associated with people coming together in common cause for events such as the March on Washington in 1963, or Woodstock, or going farther back, the outbreak of the American Civil War. He also compares it to the the London Blitz when uh, they survived it, these 40 days or so, uh, with remarkable solidarity. But then he says, now there is none of the collective fever of purpose and determination, or at least that fever must be experienced in isolation. Lovely things like the applause for healthcare workers are attempts not only to make visible and audible our appreciation, but also to share our isolation. Uh, another writer said something like, we need to come together by staying apart. What a time this is. And then a Karen Russell, (coughs) a Karen Russell comes up with this marvelous analogy of uh, starlings in flight. Um, this is the same issue of uh, the New Yorker Um, she said a few months ago I'd look skyward at this hour must be dawn or dusk to clock the the moment when a great scattering of starlings begins to wheel as one we've all seen this right It's, it's stunning Uh, They're called murmurations, she says. These flocks gather in the purple Texas dusk. Spiky, iridescent birds that stitch themselves into a single animate cloud. She mentions that starlings are an invasive species. Uh, They were introduced in 1890 uh, in Central Park in New York, and today we have 200 million She goes on to describe these enormous flocks can execute sharp turns and vortical spins with a magical feeling coordination. A thousand starlings bunch into a living fist over the trees, relax westward, sheer away behind the eastern skyscrapers. With a kind of muscular clairvoyance, each bird seems to anticipate the movements of the others. What is deciding them? What permits a thousand autonomous actors to move as one body at these unbelievable speeds?" She goes on, "...a recent study described how these birds are able to manage uncertainty in consensus." And then, is quoting from that study, "...flocks of starlings exhibit a remarkable ability to maintain cohesion as a group in highly uncertain environments and with limited noisy information. If that isn't a good comparison to what we're managing to do now, she says the the physical separation that is happening uh, is... In the midst of that, people are responding to the crisis with a surprising unity. More swiftly than I would have thought possible, hundreds of millions are heeding a difficult call to stay at home. It's a way of soaring into formation. And yet, murmuration seems like the right word for the great convergence of humans traveling through this time together listening to the latest news with our whole bodies, alert to subtle atmospheric changes, making constant recalibrations in response to the fluxing crisis at speeds to rival the dervishing starlings. How rapidly we are adjusting our behavior to protect one another. On the whole, yes... Uh, We now hear of people who are uh, protesting uh, the lockdown, who uh, are more ready than others to dismiss the cautions and uh, get business moving again. Who was it, Calvin Coolidge, who said, The business of America is business. Let's get out there and make money. Well, of course, the other side of it is uh there's so many people living on the edge. those of us who who don't face uh, bills way over our head uh who have lost jobs, those of us who haven't done that who haven't faced' facing those things um, have to be aware that there are millions of people who are in desperate straits right now. And yet, as we all know, as probably everyone knows who's listening to this, the worst thing would be to open things up again prematurely and then suffer the consequences of going back into the same lockdown, which would in the long run be worse for business, worse for employment and so forth. have to confess to having had the thought that uh that in the case of uh people who really deny science, who just won't have it, who just think it's it's something uh it's it's just the province of the elites, the experts who they have no use for. If such people were to catch the coronavirus well, some might say it's a way of thinning out the herd. But how could such how could anyone say such a thing? Another phrase in one of these articles in the New Yorker that caught my attention was that uh it's a time when everything non-covid related seems so pointless. I I admit that uh, the, the matter of uh, climate change action, the action to mitigate climate change politically, socially that uh, I felt so strongly before all this broke open has definitely gone to a back burner It's uh, It's funny, it's what could be more important than climate change, working to slow down climate change. Well, what could be more urgent is this coronavirus. You know that old distinction uh, in getting to things on one's desk, the things that are important but not urgent, the things that are urgent but not important. We will have to get back to the matter of climate change and pouring all our, re- our resources into that but for now this threat seems to be require everything of us <coughs> yeah about that cough I get it every year uh, in this winter and/ or the spring uh, so it it's uh will pass once it warms up here uh, we've had an unusually cold April uh this week. I've looked out several times and seen ice on the uh, water in the bird bath, but it will pass I also. <clears throat> Want to share what uh, what uh, a member of the Sangha experienced uh, just a couple of days ago, um, he said he woke up, and still in bed, his eyes still closed, and just in those first few seconds of consciousness, this phrase came to him. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Those is, That's the opening sentence of uh, A Tale of Two Cities, the famous novel by Charles Dickens. Well, we don't need to elaborate on why it's the worst of times. It's one god-awful, so-far-unending nightmare. But on the other hand, he said... He's never experienced in his whole adult life such a time of simplicity, daily life being so simple. Being isolated at home, he said he gets to wake up later, get out of bed later get a full night's sleep. He said he's just besotted with sleep and then set his own schedule, have breakfast every day with his wife, dinner every, almost every day with his wife. Two or three weeks ago in one of these little talks at my dining room table, I uh, talked about the, about having to deal with the contradictions the extreme contradictions in this this great pause we're going through and this surely is one of them at its best at its best this isolation can be a time of of great peace quiet. In one of those articles the the, uh, author said uh, quiet is disquieting but it needn't be disquieting. It reminds me of uh, there have been a couple times at introductory workshops where uh, someone in the uh, first round of sitting, one of the new people, uh, just gets up and runs clear out of the center, never comes back to such a person. Yes, quiet is disquieting, but for for anyone who's been doing this practice for any length of time, it has to have the other side of it. We can learn to welcome this great pause, this quiet. Of course, this means not squabbling much with one's family at home. The same author who said, quiet is disquieting, also said, limbo is a hard place to settle into. These writers, these great writers, you can only admire them and the way they can capture so much. By the way, the rest of the rest of those those opening sentences of uh, A Tale of Two Cities, I'll read the whole thing. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the age, it was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. Again, we have in Zazen, we have the resources to weather this. This is not just a pep talk. This is not like our president cheerleading, trying to be optimistic. We have the resources to weather this through daily sitting, no matter how difficult it is. And I've heard from people who are struggling uh, with Anxiety, depression, uncertainty, no matter how trying it is, it would be worse without sitting. We have to sit. If ever there were a time when we need to sit, it's now. And then we can find our way through this kind of a coma. Someone described it as, we would put ourselves into a coma in order to survive. That's a, something they learned at some point in medicine, that uh, you could save someone's life by putting them in a coma. And also sitting, uh, maybe more than anything, uh, trains us to be okay with not knowing. Not knowing. I'll end with a wonderful poem by Wendell Berry, the uh, kind of farmer poet. He must, I don't know if he's still alive, but here it is. It's from a a book of his called Standing by Words. He says, It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings.